All right, so we just finished an eight-week class on spiritual disciplines. I hope that was beneficial to you and you've gained something from it. Today, we're going to switch topics for one week. Uh, next week is the members new mem- uh, the members meeting, and then after that, Pastor Michael is going to be back doing a uh, survey of the Old Testament. Today, we're doing a different topic. Introduction to Biblical Counseling. Over the next couple months, you're going to be hearing more and more about a biblical counseling ministry that we would like to start here. And one of the parts of that is training people to do biblical counseling. And so today, I would like to introduce you to what is biblical counseling and talk about it. And then we're going to use biblical counseling to examine one particular sin. And it's a sin that's ubiquitous that everybody deals with. Um, I am going to be moving quickly, which I think is kind of normal for me. But if you want the slides, they will be available to you online, so don't feel like you have to kill your hand trying to write. I'm gonna, All the slides will be online for you. Okay, so to understand biblical counseling, we need to begin with what biblical counseling is not. You hear counseling and you assume things about it because you're used to hearing counseling in the secular world, and what the secular world does and what biblical counseling does are two very different things. First, biblical counseling is not autonomous from the local church. Biblical counseling is to be performed in the church, with the church, by the church, through the church. People who are not in a local church, who do not have elders over them, who are not participating in the body of the church, they cannot effectively go through biblical counseling because they need to have shepherds over them. They need to have elders. A big part of biblical counseling is church discipline. If there's someone who's swaying off into sin and they're not willing to turn back, church discipline is necessary. So they have to be a part of the local church. There's no case where biblical counseling occurs as a separate entity by itself, and there's no church involvement. If you go into biblical counseling, your counselor needs to know who your elders are so that that your elders can be informed of what's going on in your spiritual life. Secondly, biblical counseling is not exclusive to experts. There's not this special class of super-Christians that engage in biblical counseling. Biblical counseling is for everyone. I'm going to demonstrate this in a little while. That is not to say that there's no training required. That's not to say that there's nothing you need to learn. But it's just not that there's this special group of people who have all these little abbreviations and acronyms at the end of their name. Those people do biblical counseling, and I don't. That's not the way it works. Third, biblical counseling is not psychology. I wish I had time to go into psychology this morning. If you would like to learn more about why we reject psychology, go online under the equipping classes. There's a class called Walking with Christ Week 1. I spend 30 to 40 minutes dealing with the issue of psychology and why we refuse to participate with psychology. These two do not mix. They do not intermingle. We have nothing to do with psychology. Biblical counseling is not insensitive and uncaring. There is this view that biblical counseling is really, here's a verse hit them over the head with the Bible, and tell them to do better. That is not biblical counseling. Biblical counseling is coming alongside someone, lovingly helping them walk in a way that is pleasing to Christ. Biblical counseling is not separate from discipleship. Biblical counseling is a form of discipleship. When you go to biblical counseling, you are being discipled. That's what it is. They're not two different things. Biblical counseling is discipleship. And finally, biblical counseling is not optional. It's not optional. When you look into the New Testament, what you find is that 
everyone was engaging in a form of biblical counseling. Acts 20, verse 31. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. He uses this word admonish. That's Paul speaking of himself, admonishing someone else. He wrote to the Romans, Romans 15, verse 14, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to admonish one another. So you have an apostle who's engaged in admonishing, and you have the local members of the church who are engaged in admonishing. But what does this word here mean? What does it mean to admonish? The word Paul uses is nutheteo. That's on the quiz later, okay? Nutheteo. It's actually a compound Greek word. It combines one word, nous, which means mind, and a verb, tithemi, which means to put in. So you could say nutheteo, or to admonish, means to put into the mind. To put into the mind, to place in the mind. Biblical counseling focuses on informing your mind. Paul said in Romans 12, the renewing of your mind. Renew your mind. We're engaging in the mind. One lexicon defined this word this way. It means training by words of encouragement and also by that of reproof and blame. The goal of biblical counseling is to instruct your mind, to instruct how you believe so that you will think differently and as you think differently, you will behave differently. BDAG, the, uh, gold lex- uh, the gold standard for Greek lexicons, define this word this way. It means to counsel about avoidance of ces- or cessation of improper course of conduct, admonish, warn, and instruct. It means to counsel. Paul said, I counseled you, and you counsel one another. And the counseling is aimed at helping you stop sinning and start living righteously. Colossians 1.28, Paul uses the same word again. He says, we proclaim him, that would be Jesus Christ, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Did you notice we admonish every man? Every person receives counseling? We teach every man, every person receives this instruction, and the goal, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. Just like when we talked about the spiritual disciplines, the goal of the spiritual disciplines is that you would grow in Christ-likeness. The goal of biblical counseling is not to remove your problems. It's not to give you a better life. It's not to make you happy. The goal of biblical counseling is to make you more like Christ. That's the goal. So what is biblical counseling? It's intense one-on-one discipleship. It's one Christian coming alongside of another Christian and helping them learn how to walk as Christ would have them to walk. That's biblical counseling. Biblical counseling is for everyone. Everyone does biblical counseling. I have news for you. If you're in this room and you're a Christian, you are a biblical counselor. If you have family members that you have ever spoken to about sin in their life, or you've ever given biblical advice to, you've engaged in biblical counseling. 
If you're a parent and you have children and you are trying to raise them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, instructing them to do these things and not to do these things, and you use the Bible to do it, you're a biblical counselor. If you have a spouse that you've tried to help with sin or to live a more godly life, congratulations, you're a biblical counselor. If you're in the church and you've ever helped another member of the church in their walk, you're a biblical counselor. The question is not, are you a biblical counselor? The question is, do you know how to do it? Do you understand what you're doing and are you biblical in doing it? So the goal of biblical counseling. Biblical counseling seeks the sanctification of the Christian. That's the goal, to be sanctified, to grow in your knowledge of Christ and to grow in your godliness. Biblical counseling seeks to discern desires, thinking, and behavior that God wants to change. And I want you to notice, top of the list, desires, thinking. We're instructing the mind. We're dealing with what's going on inside. This is not behavior modification. Behavior is the fruit of the changed heart. Finally, biblical counseling uses God's word by the Holy Spirit to change desires, thinking, and behavior. We do not use the DSM-5. That's what psychology uses. We do not use our own intuition and our own opinions. True biblical counseling is based on what the Word of God says, and we try to apply the Word of God to your life, beginning with what you think, what you believe, and what you desire. And as those things change, your behavior changes with it. Now, if we're going to talk about changing our thoughts and our attitudes and our beliefs and our desires, we need to understand where in the Bible it actually discusses those things. When the Bible talks about your thoughts, your desires, all of that, it's talking about your heart. Your heart in the Bible refers to your inner life. Your heart is responsible for your thinking, it's responsible for your desires, your intentions, your planning, and your emotions. All of those things are encompassed in what the Bible refers to as the heart. It is the seat of intention and desire. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. Your heart is how you plan, it's how you purpose, it's how you formulate what you're going to do. Your heart, when it, the, the Bible speaks of your heart, it describes your thought life. What's going on in between your two ears? Proverbs 4.23, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. You can adjust that translation and say, watch over your thought life with all diligence. A Christian who cannot or will not control what's going on in their mind, in their thought life, is going to have a really hard time growing in the Christian life. They're going to have a really hard time avoiding sin. The heart is also deep and mysterious. You don't actually know your own heart. I don't know my own heart. It takes work to understand it. Proverbs 20, verse 5, A plan in the heart of a man is like deep water, but a man of understanding draws it out. And when you use the word of God, you can actually draw out the plans of a man's heart. Hebrews 4 says it cuts the marrow from the bone. 
It discerns intentions. Secular psychology doesn't have a tool that'll do that for you. The heart, yes. Forrest was saying that secular psychology never agrees with itself, and he's right. When you look at the psychological methods that they use, there's over 250 different methods. And so for any given problem that you go to the psychologist with, you can get any one of 250 to 300 different answers to your problem. Imagine if your medical doctor had the same issue. You have the cold, and there's 250 to 300 different solutions to what you should do about your cold. The heart is also deceptive. Jeremiah 49, 16. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. One of the greatest problems a Christian has is not that they don't want to be pure. One of their greatest problems is that they don't realize just how many problems there are in their heart. They don't realize how deceitful and wicked their heart is. And you hear this when they say, well, I just can't believe I said that. Or I can't believe I did that. Well, if you understood how evil and wicked your heart was, you would understand why you did that. Yeah, so she was saying that secular psychology tries to get you to understand yourself. And here, here's the contradiction with Christianity. Christianity says, no, you can't understand yourself. Your heart is wicked and deceitful. And your heart will always give you a positive image of who you are, rather than an honest image. And this is important when we talk about biblical counseling. The, the idea of the heart is important. Because when you talk to secular psychologists, they will tell you your problems are not you. If you have an alcohol problem, well, that's because of your parents. Your daddy was abusive. Your mother didn't love you enough. It, all your problems are outside of you. Biblical counseling recognizes that the, the sin in our life does not come from outside of us. Sin comes from within. Mark 7, 21 through 23. You guys know this. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But all sin proceeds from within. And notice he begins this list proceed from the heart of men evil thoughts. He begins right there with where biblical counseling starts. What's going on in your heart? Because that's where the sin comes from. If you have sin in your life, it's because there's sin in your heart. Now, I was originally going to do this class, and we were going to do two different sins. And I started working on the first one, and then I realized I don't have enough room for the second. So we're just going to do one. 
the good news about this one is it's ubiquitous. There's not a person in this room who can sit here and tell me I've never had a problem with that before. Everybody has had a problem with this to some degree. And if you tell me you haven't, we need to talk about the sin of lying. Okay? Here it is. Anger. Everybody agree? We've all had a problem with it sooner or later. We've all done it. And so this is a nice, ubiquitous sin that everyone's had to deal with and everyone still has to deal with. And we're going to look at this sin from the perspective of biblical counseling. How does a biblical counselor view anger? Richard Baxter provides a good definition of anger. He does it in good Puritan form. Here's what he says. The right anger is the rising up in the heart in passionate displacency against an apprehended evil, which would cross or hinder us of some desired good. I told you it was good Puritan form. Okay, so Robert Jones actually gives a similar definition, but he says it in a way that's a little bit easier to understand. Our anger is our whole personed active response of negative moral judgment against perceived evil. And I just want to break this definition down so we understand what he's saying. First, I want you to notice he says, our anger is our whole personed active response. Anger is not something you have. You will hear people say, well, I have a lot of anger. No, you don't. You don't have anger. You might have the flu, but you don't have anger. Anger is something you do, not something you possess. And if, it's, if we say, well, it's something I have, then there's nothing for you to repent of. It's avoiding the issue. It's something I do. I get angry. I do angry. I don't have anger. Secondly, he says it's a whole personed response. The entire person is involved when they are angry. Secular psychology will try to limit this to just emotions. Well, you have an emotional problem. Actually, you don't have an emotional problem. Your emotions are working just fine. They're doing exactly what God designed them to do. You have a problem with anger. Robert Jones says this, it comprises the whole person and encompasses our whole package of beliefs, feelings, actions, and desires. If you just assume that anger is nothing more than an emotion, you will never deal with the root causes of it. And that means you'll never actually repent and get rid of the sin because you're not dealing with the actual sin. Back to the definition, he says it is a response. It is our response. Anger doesn't come from a vacuum. It's not some mysterious thing that just kind of shows up. It's not something that happens on its own. It's how we are responding to what we perceive as a provocation. Someone does something, and I don't like what they've done. I have a problem with what they've done, and I respond in anger. This does not mean they are the cause of my anger. You'll hear little kids on the playground, he called me a stupid face. He made me angry. No, he didn't make you angry. You chose to respond in anger. Anger is a response. It's a response that we choose, whether we 
know that we're choosing it or not, it's something we choose. Anger is a negative moral judgment. A negative moral judgment. That means that we see something that we feel, that we believe is wrong. And we assess it as being wrong or evil or immoral. We call it a negative moral judgment not because it is always sinful, but because it opposes the perceived evil. We have something, we see a problem with what someone has done, with what someone has said, and we judge it as being wrong. And we are opposed to whatever they did. Our anger postures us against what we determine to be evil. And that last phrase is really important. What we determine is evil. And that's the last part of this. It is a perceived evil. And he puts that in there, not to say that you never have anger against actual evil, but it is only to say that sometimes our judgment is wrong. Sometimes we view a situation or something someone says, and we assess it as being evil when it's really not. Now, there are two types of anger. There are two types. When we're talking about human anger, we're talking about two types of anger. Righteous and sinful. God has anger. His anger is always the first one. It is always righteous anger. And so when we talk about righteous anger, understand the model for righteous anger is God himself. Righteous anger can be seen in Ephesians 4. Verse 26, he says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down in your anger. So it is possible for you to be angry without sinning. So not all anger is sinful. In this context, he's talking about anger against our personal sin. I see sin in my life. It makes me angry. Paul also discussed his righteous anger. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty nine. He says, who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? And the phrase here, intense concern, refers to burning red hot or becoming inflamed. You might say he became red in the face. Indignation. And in that context, it refers to anger. Paul looks at the church in the Corinthians and he sees people being led into sin, and he gets angry about it. It upsets him. And it should upset believers when we see other Christians or even lost people being led away into sin. There is a right place for anger to occur. So what are some characteristics of righteous anger? What is righteous anger, and how can we know that we have righteous anger? First, righteous anger is a response to sin. Sin as defined in Scripture. It's not a response to things that are not sinful. It's a response to biblical sin. Secondly, righteous anger is God-centered. What we mean there is that it focuses on what God is concerned about. Righteous anger mimics God. If God is concerned about this, I'm concerned about it. If God is angry about this, I am angry about it. My motivation is the glory of God and God's desires. 
Righteous anger does not produce sin. You will never find a person demonstrating righteous anger and using it as a justification for sin. Or responding with righteous anger and sin. Righteous anger is always manifested without sin. It's always manifested in a holy way. And that righteous anger leads to a godly response. Here's what I mean by that. Anger can be used, righteous anger can be used for good things. In Ephesians 4, righteous anger is used to fuel repentance. It gives motivation. In Mark 11, Jesus uses righteous anger to fuel his driving out the money changers and cleansing the temple. Righteous anger is always used to accomplish something that God wants. Whether that's in your life or in the life of someone else. Your righteous anger against sin in the church will lead you to go to a brothers and sister and say, Hey, you're in sin. You need to stop. You need to repent. So those are the four characteristics. It responds to actual sin. It is God-centered. It does not produce sin. And it always leads to a godly response. The line between righteous anger and sinful anger, the next one, is very narrow. And righteous anger can easily transition in and become sinful. And it does that in two ways. Righteous anger becomes sinful in two ways. One, it's internalized. And two, it's vented. Righteous anger is used to accomplish God's will. Sinful anger is used destructively. It's internalized or it's vented. Let's talk about internalized anger. Someone called this the slow burn. See if you've seen any of this. Okay. A person who has uh, internalized anger starts clamming up. They can become moody. You, you see on their face there's a problem. You ask them, what's wrong? Nothing. But you, you know that ain't true. Or they'll try to cover it up. And they'll say, something like, I'm not angry, I'm frustrated. Yeah, the Bible says that's anger. Or they'll say something like this, I'm not angry, I'm irritated. You're, you're angry. Or they'll really get after it and they'll say, I'm not angry, I'm disgusted. These are all forms of anger. And they, all they've done is just internalized it. Or they'll just sit there and glare at you. I used to work in juvenile corrections. They used to call this mad dogging. And the, like the kid would get in trouble, and you were the officer who wrote him up, and he'd just sit there and stare at you. Or huffing and puffing and snorting. All of these are signs of internalized anger. The anger is not being used to accomplish God's desires or God's will. It's just being used destructively to yourself and to the people around you. And you're just destroying relationships with it. Then there's vented anger. You might call this explosive anger. And this is what most people in the world would say, this is when you have an anger problem. This is yelling and screaming. I had someone tell me I yell because that's the only time they listen. Or slamming things around. 
cursing, telling someone off, calling them names, hitting. All of these are forms of vented anger. You are venting and dealing with your anger by lashing out. You can do this verbally. Colossians 3.8 actually explains where verbal vented anger comes from. He says, but now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Notice he gives a list. But this list isn't just random sins lumped together. It's actually a progression. The first one leads to the second one. The second one leads to the third one. The third one leads to the fourth, and so on. Anger leads to wrath. Anger that's in the heart, that's undealt with, that's internalized, if you leave it alone and you just let it build, will eventually explode into wrath. Malice is wishing and hoping for evil on someone else. That's long-term anger left unchecked. Slander and abuse of speech is the result of those ill intentions and that anger in the heart. If you don't deal with it when it's internalized, if you don't deal with it at the beginning, it's going to come out later. By the time you get to the abuse of speech, you've had an anger problem for a long time. You've been in sin for a while. When we talk about anger and we have someone who's using abuse of speech or slandering people, in biblical counseling, we're not concerned with just changing their behavior. We need to get down to why are they angry. We need to get to the heart issue. Secular psychology actually embraces vented anger, and they will embrace this by encouraging the free and verbal expression of anger. They actually encourage the verbal and the physical expression of anger. I have some quotes from a lady who was leading an anger management group. And I want you to listen to how she describes this group. Here's what they did. Here's what she said. Pillows from sofas were used as props to be beaten, struck, pounded, thrashed, and abused by people who imagined them to be whoever it was that made them mad. So you got all these people who are angry, and you set up these pillows, and you say, wail on them. She continues, a pretty woman who had been lying on a mattress, kicking and shrieking in unspecified rage. Later, the woman told her son, I was working out some angry feelings I had about grandma. I read that and I thought, was her son watching? She was essentially throwing a temper tantrum. And she's doing this about her mother. Now, she gave a really good assessment of what was going on here. She actually gave a biblical assessment, even though I don't think she's actually Christian. Here's her assessment of what's going on in these groups. Most of the anger gestures amounted to ritual murders. Many of the people had to be reminded, remember, it's only a pillow. Here's a secular psychologist, counselor. She looks at these outbursts of anger and rage, and she essentially says the same thing Jesus said about anger. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5? He said, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And the rest of that verse, he says, because if you do, you'll be liable to the court. You'll get the death penalty. The very next verse, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. To be guilty before the court means you're guilty of murder. 
that secular counselor came to the exact same conclusion. These people are essentially committing murder in their minds. Anger is not something that you can just ignore, even if it's internalized. Robert Jones says, anger casts negative mental votes against unjust actions. It determines that all offenders must change, be punished, or be removed. It issues mental death penalty verdicts against the guilty. No wonder Jesus taught that anger is the moral equivalent of murder. When you harbor anger in your heart against another person, what you're essentially doing is you're playing court. And you represent every member of the court except one person, the defense attorney. But all other people are represented by you. You are the judge, you are the jury, you are the prosecutor, and you are the executioner. This is, this is anger, yeah. Forrest was saying, what happens when those people who are beating on pillows don't have a pillow to beat on? Now what do they do? Well, you know what they do. So if we want to deal with this, and I think this is where Forrest is going, how do you deal with anger? Whether it's internalized or vented. From a biblical perspective, what do you do about anger? How do you deal with it if I'm dealing with this? And here's the good news. Secular psychology doesn't have an answer. They tell you about anger management. You just need to control your anger. Good luck with that. But the Bible does give us an answer. The Bible is sufficient to deal with our sin problems. James 4, verses 1 and 2. What is the source of your quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Notice he says there, why are you fighting? Why is there anger and aggression between you? And he narrows it down to one thing. You lust. The source of anger is lust. That's where anger comes from. That's why you have anger, is because you have lust. A lust is simply any strong desire. We oftentimes think of lust in a sexual context. The Bible doesn't make that limitation. It's any strong desire. When you look at the Old Testament, the children of Israel in the wilderness started complaining. Remember this? God gave them manna from the sky and said, we don't want that, God. We want meat. Give us meat. Give us something other than this worthless food. Numbers 11.4, Moses says they had greedy desires. It was their greedy desires that caused them to complain and to grumble and to be angry with God. Paul started discussing the children of Israel and their trip through the wilderness in 1 Corinthians 10. 
He said in 1 Corinthians 5, they were laid low in the wilderness. That is to say that God judged them in the wilderness, and he judged them because of their complaining and their grumbling. In the very next verse, Paul says this, Now these things happened as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. They were made an example so that we would not be desirous and lusting after things that we should not lust after. And when you look in Scripture, lusting is referred to as a form of idolatry. And even here in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 7, notice when he says, Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Anyone know what, where this is from? Anyone know where he's quoting from? It's out of Exodus. It's Exodus 32, the golden calf. Moses brings up idolatry, but he doesn't, excuse me. Yeah, Moses brings up idolatry. Paul here brings up idolatry. And he says they were engaged in idolatry, and then he quotes Exodus 32, and he says, Nothing about the golden calf. The idolatry of Exodus 32 also included their desires. What were their desires? The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Food, drinking, drunkenness, stood up to play as a reference to sexual immorality. The idolatry Paul is referring to here is the idolatry that happens in the heart. Lusts and desires that are now worshipped as functional gods. They were greedy. They were covetous. They wanted things that God did not give them, that God told them they could not have. Covetousness, greed, is idolatry. When we desire things that God has not given us, it is a form of covetousness. Colossians 3.5, he gives another list. He says, passion, evil desire, and greed which amounts to idolatry. Ephesians 5.5, 5, or the covetous man who is an idolater. When we think of idolatry, don't just think about bowing down to statues and idols. Idolatry occurs in the heart. And the idols that we worship are not false gods. They are our own desires. The things that we want, we elevate to the place of God. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul finishes that section. He says, verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. In 1 Corinthians 10, he doesn't even mention the golden calf. He's talking about the idolatry of heart desires. Dr. John Street said this, Scripture reveals that when your heart's chief longings and worship are on anything other than the God of glory, this is idolatry. Idols consist of anything ruling your heart, whether an object or an idea, whether a statue or an intensive longing. These are ruling desires. They have taken over your heart. They occupy your mind. It's all you think about. You think about it constantly. Dr. Street continues, The desire for drink, food, entertainment, and sex can become idolatrous cravings that rule the heart. And to be sure, many of these are 
in and of themselves okay desires. They're not necessarily sinful by itself. But they can become idolatrous. Any desire that you have can become an idol. This is one thing they tell us in seminary all the time. Guys, ministry can be an idol. Something good can be turned into an idol. Calvin said your heart is an idol factory. It just pumps out idols all day. So how do I know if my desire has become an idol? How do I know if I'm engaging in idolatry with my desires? Well, take your desire, whatever it is, and we're going to put two bookends. That's what Stuart Scott called it, bookends. And we're going to put one thing on the left side and one thing on the right side. Here's how you can tell if your desire, your lust, has become idolatrous. First, you're willing to sin in order to get it. Whatever it is. If you're willing to go and violate God's law to get what you want, you're in idolatry. Because you've taken your desire, you've elevated it above God's desire, and that desire has now become your functional God that you serve and worship. The other side of it, you can probably figure out what it is. You will sin if you don't get it. Or if it's denied to you. If someone takes it away from you. Then you'll go and sin. Because I have a right to this. That's what you've essentially done. You've taken a good thing and you've made it a right. I have to have whatever it is. And if I don't get it, then I am justified in sinning against God, violating his law, because my desire is more important. Robert Jones gives a little short list of desires. He calls them felt needs or rights. A felt need is just something that you feel that you have to have. And a right is something you feel entitled to. Here's his short list. I just want to note, the very last one, if you can't read in the back, is other, filling your desire. So this is not an all-encompassing list. But what I really want you to see is that any desire can be turned into an idol. You can turn any desire into an idol. Uh, for those of you in the back, I'll just give you some of these. I, I have to have privacy. I have to be able to hold and express my personal opinion. I need to be loved and accepted. I need to be understood and listened to. I have a right to date or to marry. These are good desires in and of themselves. But when you're willing to sin to get it, or, will, or when you're willing to sin if you don't get it, you have now gone into idolatry. You have elevated your desire above the desire of God. And you're in sin. You're worshiping your, your, your desires. If you have your Bible, go over to Ezekiel 14 real quick. I want to demonstrate this to you graphically. In a good way. In Ezekiel, God is bringing judgment on Israel for their idols. They've set up idols or high places all over the nation of Israel. They've got these high places where they are worshiping false gods. And so I have them depicted here on the outside of the heart. These are stone, metal statues that they are bowing down and worshiping. And in Ezekiel 14, he's going to bring judgment on them. And I want you to notice what he says in verse 3. Son of man, 
these men, speaking of the people of Israel, have set up their idols in their hearts and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. Should I be consulted by them at all? Therefore speak to them and tell them, thus says the Lord God, any man of the house of Israel who sets up, an, sets up his idols in his heart puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity and then comes to the prophet. I, the Lord, will be brought to, ha- uh, will be brought to give him an answer in the matter in view of the multitude of his idols. First thing I want you to notice, verse 3. They have idols all around the country, and he says they have set up idols where? In their hearts. The fact that idols existed all around the nation of Israel was only evidence that the people of Israel had built altars and idols in their own hearts. The external just proves what's going on inside. The other thing I want you to know is verse 4. He says, who sets up his idols, plural, in his heart. One heart, multiple idols. You rarely deal with just one idol. You're rarely having just one idol in the heart. There's usually multiple idols that have to be dealt with. So what are some of these idols? I have these little altars in this heart up here. What are some of the idols that people put up? Well, one of them is man's approval. I have to have other people who like me, who approve of me. This is one of the reasons why public speaking is one of the most fearful things in the world. Because when you get up to publicly speak, you don't know what people are going to think of you. Or control. I need to be in control. I have to have control. And if something comes out of my control, I don't like it. Or health. Or appearance. I'll do anything to look a certain way. As long as I can maintain this appearance, that's what's most important to me. This is a big one. Respect. When I was in corrections, I I had kids tell me all the time, why'd you hit that guy? He disrespected me. They've idolized respect. I have to have respect. And if you don't give it to me, I'm going to get my pound of flesh. Or peace. It's amazing how many people will yell and scream and shout so they can have peace. Kind of contradictory, isn't it? Or sensuality, sexual fulfillment. If God doesn't give me what I want right now, I'm going to go out and find it on my own, whether he likes it or not. Or pleasure, entertainment. I have to be entertained. And if you get in the way of my entertainment, watch out. Now, all of these smaller idols actually feed into the worship of one big one. Anybody can guess what that big one is? Self. All of these are a form of self-worship. The ultimate God the person is bowing down to is not necessarily these idols, but it's to the God of self. And you could actually say each one of these has a separate liturgy. A liturgy is a form of worship. So for one person, 
their desire to have a certain appearance might manifest itself in anorexia. For another person, it might manifest itself and they go shopping all the time because they have to look a certain way. And they spend tons and tons of money shopping. All of these have different liturgies, but all of them feed into the God of self. So how does this get us to anger? Well, let's look at these for a moment. What happens when I deny you one of your idols? Let's say man's approval. If my idol is man's approval, and I stand up this morning to teach, how comfortable am I going to be when I realize I have to get all of you to approve of me? That's going to be a hard task. I'm going to be fighting an uphill battle. Don't you think that might create in me just a little bit of anxiety? A little bit of worry about what are they going to say? What are they going to think? Or the next one, control. I've got my life established just the way I like it. Everything is in its proper place. Nobody interferes with it. And then something happens. I go and get married. And she comes in, she starts moving stuff around, starts changing stuff. Or he comes in and starts moving stuff. I'm doing it from my side. If I would have said he moves stuff around, people would look. You see what I'm saying? But if that's my idol, and if I know I have to have control of everything, the idea of getting married is going to cause a lot of fear because I recognize now I'm not going to have the control that I want. Or respect. I have to be respected. You will respect me. And if you don't, prepare to see my wrath. I'm going to lash out. These negative emotions are the direct result of idolatrous worship in the heart. And you cannot deal with anxiety or fear or anger by just simply changing your behavior. You have to deal with these desires. You have to address them at the level of the heart. This is where biblical counseling goes. False religion doesn't go here. False religion will tell you, hey, you have this sexual desire. As long as you don't act on it, it's cool. The true Christian faith deals with heart-level desires. And the world has a term for these three negative emotions, anger, fear, and anxiety. They have a term for it. You know what they call it? Stress. This is the point where the person will say, I'm stressed out. And now I need to go find some stress relief. And they create this little valve off to the side so they can relieve their stress. What are some things they do to relieve their stress? Drugs and alcohol. They drink their problems away. They don't have to feel it anymore. Or they go to the socially acceptable antidepressants to medicate away the pain rather than deal with the actual problem. Or they go and they engage in sexual sin or food. They don't, they're not actually hungry. They're just going to go eat because it makes them feel better. Because, I mean, a bowl of ice cream makes everybody feel better. <laughs> or sleep. I'm just going to sleep through it. I don't feel anything. Or exercise. You go to the gym and you ask them, hey, 
why are you in the gym? I'm just killing some stress right now. Stress relief. Or shopping. Or reading. Spending your life in fantasy novels so you can avoid the problems of life. You notice how all of these kind of feed right back into the idols themselves? Drug use. Pleasure. It's a form of worship. It feeds right into your desire for pleasure. Sexual sin. Pleasure, sensuality. Yeah, these are just forms of false worship. And so what ends up happening is they just go in a spiral further and further and further down because the thing that they think is going to solve their problem is actually making their problem worse. This is the realm of secular psychology. This is all they have. And by the way, the statistics on antidepressants say that people on antidepressants are 40% more likely to commit suicide because the antidepressant just numbs people doesn't actually solve the problem. Well, then something happens. Then they do something really crazy. They go to church and they hear the gospel and they get saved and God moves in. And the Holy Spirit shows up. Now, he's not going to get rid of all these desires because some of these desires are God-given good desires to have. And so they're not going to go away. The first thing he's going to do is he's going to uh, close off the stress relief valve. And now the Christian is no longer allowed to find refuge or peace or joy here. This can no longer be the way that you relieve the consequences of your sin. If you want a refuge, if you want peace and joy, there's only one place you can find it. If you want to be free of anxiety, fear, or anger, there's only one place you can find it. It's right here. And the only way you can do that is by stop worshiping the false idols and start worshiping the true God. The problem here is not you have an anger problem. The problem is you have a worship problem. And you need to begin worshiping God as you are supposed to. So how do you do that? How do you begin to worship God the way you're supposed to? Let's get into some practical. If you're dealing with sinful anger... What can you do today, or what should you do today? First, you start with confession. Confession to God, confessing your anger as sinful, as idolatrous, and confessing to those that you have hurt. So if anyone has been the victim of your wrath and anger, you need to go and confess that to them as well. You need to pray for God's help. You can't even understand your own heart. And so the task ahead of you is difficult. And you're going to need some help with it. So pray. Next, we need to recognize that our anger is the result of our thoughts and our desires. And so we need to have some good biblical thoughts to replace those sinful ones with. This desire fills my mind. I'm thinking about it constantly. I need to have something else to put into my head to think on and to dwell on. This is where our spiritual disciplines really come into play, don't they? 
List out godly desires and goals to fix your mind upon. Instead of having the desire that I need to have everyone love me, my desire is that God would be pleased with everything that I do. Do you see how fundamentally different those two are? If my desire is to get everyone to love me, I'll use all sorts of things to justify sin. But if my desire is to be pleasing to God in everything, and my ultimate desire is to get his approval, I can't justify sin with it. List out some godly desires and goals and begin to fix your mind on those. Be on guard for anger in the future. The Old Testament refers to you as a, a, a watchman on the, on, the, on the walls of a city. You're alert. You're looking out. You're aware of what the idol is and you're looking out for it in your thought life. And finally, avoid angry people. If you have people in your life who are constantly angry and they don't do anything about it, stay away from them. I'm sorry? (laughs) Yeah, if it's your spouse, get some biblical counseling. (laughs) But to the extent possible, try to stay away from people who are engaging in anger. All right, what do you do when you're tempted to anger? Again, pray for God's help. And then you're going to apply the principles we learned in Ephesians 4. Put off and put on. You're going to start putting off idolatry and anger. So you need to ask yourself some questions. What is it that I want so badly? When I start getting angry, I need to ask myself the question, what is it that I want? What's the driving heart motive? What is being denied to me right now? That'll help me understand what the compelling desire is. And when I know what that is, I can actually repent of it. And when you have an answer to that, you confess it as idolatry and you let go of it. This is not something God has given me, so I'm not going to fixate my mind on it. And I'm going to trust God that he will provide for me what I actually need. And then you're going to put on, you're going to put on the right things. Ask yourself, what should I be thinking? If I shouldn't be focusing on this desire, what should I be focusing on? What is a godly desire to have in this situation? Is there something that I should do that is right? See this active, proactive sanctification here? You're taking steps to address your sin, and you're doing it in the moment. One easy, one helpful thing that you can do, I have to go quickly because we're almost out of time, or actually we're out of time, is to keep a hate journal. I know that sounds horrible, doesn't it? This is my hate journal. Don't do that. It comes out of Romans Romans 12, where he says, hate what is evil. I hate idolatry. I hate sinful anger. So I'm going to keep this journal to help me understand what are the driving idolatrous desires that are leading to my anger. Hate. H. What happened? Write down who, what, when, where. Give the details. Who was involved? What happened? A. How did you act? What did you say? What did you do? What did you feel? T. What were your thoughts? What did you want? What mastered your thoughts and desires? What was controlling you? E. What is excellent? What should I be thinking on? What does scripture say I should focus my mind upon?
and you keep this log for two, three weeks, and you write it down, and you be honest, because lying to yourself is like shooting yourself in the foot. It's just a horrible thing to do. Just be honest. Write it down. Be faithful. And by the end of that two weeks, you will have a record of every time you've been angry, and you can see the patterns of your own anger. What do you do after you get angry? Ask yourself, what, how did I sin? Again, be honest. What should I do the next time this happens? Plan out. How am I going to address this situation the next time? And then confess and ask God for forgiveness of, um, for what you've done and ask for forgiveness of those that you've hurt. And then be on guard again. All right. Questions. If you have questions, we're over time. So if you have questions, come and see me afterwards. I'll be happy to answer your questions. All right. Let's close in prayer real quick. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word truly is sufficient to deal with our sin, to help us grow in our sanctification. Lord, you know our hearts. You know the desires of our hearts. You know the ones that are pleasing to you and the ones that are not pleasing to you. And we just ask that you would help us to see the ones that are displeasing, that you would help us to see our idolatrous cravings and desires, that we would be able to repent of them. We do ask that you would help us to focus on you the remainder of today as we worship. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.